Bible reading this morning is from Jonah chapter 3. It's a God of second chances. The reading you have either the insert in your bulletin or the reading will be on the screen. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. And this is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that they will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. Our second reading is uh, two verses in Acts chapter 10, 34 and 35. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Well, good morning. Uh, can I encourage you to make sure you keep your Bibles open or those passages out uh, so you can make sure that we're actually hearing from God and uh, not just something I'm making up. Uh, that'd be great. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your powerful word. We pray this morning uh, that you would use it uh, to do surgery on our hearts, uh, transform the way we think, transform the things that we love, and that we may transform what we do and result in praise to you. Amen. Well, on August the 6th, 1945, World War II was on its last legs. Germany had surrendered and it was clear already that the West had won. But Japan still refused to surrender. Uh, it looked like nothing could make them surrender. It looked like the whole nation would go kamikaze and fight to the last man standing. On that day, a single B-29 bomber flew over Hiroshima and dropped a single bomb with devastating consequences. Three days later, when a second atomic bomb was dropped on Nagasaki and the US threatened to continue dropping bombs as long as it took until Japan surrendered. Finally, Japan knew they had to act to avoid complete destruction. This strong, proud and mighty people surrendered, brought to their knees by the power of the atom bomb. 
Now, somewhere around 700 BC, a single Jewish prophet walked into another strong, proud and mighty people. He walked into the capital city of Assyria. And this prophet dropped a bomb in Nineveh that sent shockwaves throughout the entire city. And the bomb that Jonah dropped was the word of the Lord. God's word, the word of Yahweh, the Lord of heaven and earth. And when Jonah dropped this bomb, Nineveh knew it had to act to avoid complete destruction. This strong and mighty people, as we just read, surrendered, brought to their knees by the incredible power of the word of God. Well, where are we so far in the book of Jonah? Uh, we saw back in chapter 1 that God's word came to Jonah and God sent him on a mission to go and preach against Nineveh. Of course, uh, Jonah didn't want to do that and so he tried running the other way. Uh, but as we know, trying to run from an all-knowing, ever-present, all-seeing God uh, is a pretty dumb idea. And God stopped Jonah in his tracks. He arranged for a giant sea creature to swallow Jonah and keep him alive and then... Eventually, after Jonah admits just how foolish he's been to try and disobey God, he surrenders and God gets the creature to spit Jonah up at a beach somewhere in the direction of Nineveh. And then we come today to chapter 3. After being spat up on the beach and you know, maybe an 800-kilometre walk to Nineveh, Jonah's finally arrived. Have a look at 3 verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim the message that I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Nineveh was so large it took three days to go through. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh, will be overthrown. The word of the Lord brings judgment. Now, I know particularly in our day and age, uh, the message of God that he gives to Jonah, that doesn't sound very attractive, does it? It's a, it's a pretty stark and harsh message, isn't it? 40 days and you'll be destroyed. Now, I reckon we'd probably ask God if there was something else we could say instead. You know, God, that's, that's a pretty negative message. Maybe, have you got something a little bit more positive? You know, you've got some, some positive spin I can put on this. How about I just tell them that you love them and you think they're great and you want to bless them? It's a pretty hard-hitting message, isn't it? And one that really grates with us today. Well, back in chapter 1, uh, when the word of the Lord first came to Jonah, God told Jonah to prince, preach against Nineveh. Not to Nineveh, but against them. See, the word of the Lord that has come to Nineveh is a word that brings judgment. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And this is the only message here that's recorded. We don't know if Jonah literally only said those words on repeat as he walked through the city for three days. 
Uh, we don't know if he, he sort of filled out that message with a bit of explanation and others, but at the very heart, this message is simply this. God is saying to Nineveh, I am coming and I am going to destroy you. Judgment is coming soon. Now, I wonder if you find that kind of uncomfortable, kind of offensive. Maybe you think, well, I, I didn't think God was like that. Actually, I don't even know if I, if I like God if he's like that. I thought he was kinder than that. Now, think about this. If you were walking along the side of the street one day and you saw uh, someone you know and love and they're walking across the street and they're looking at their mobile phone and all of a sudden they stop in the middle of the road and you look up and you see a big semi-trailer heading towards them. What kind of message do they need at that moment? Uh, it's, it's probably not the time to call out and say, hey, hey. I just wanted to let you know I love you. You're looking good today. That's not quite the message they need to hear, is it? That message they need right at that moment is a very short and sharp and stark reality. You are in serious danger. Get out of the way. See, the loving thing to do when someone is facing serious danger is, is to let them know that that danger is there, to tell them the truth as harsh or stark or uncomfortable that might be. And the word of the Lord does just that. This word of the Lord to Nineveh announces them of the danger that is imminent. And it wasn't just Jonah who God gave a message of judgment. Actually, the message that God has given to us, for all the world, starts with judgment too. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.26, the wages of sin is death. John 9.39, Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world, so that blind will see and those who see will become blind. Hebrews 10 if we deliberately keep sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Acts 10, 42. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he, Jesus, is the one who God has appointed judge of the living and the dead. See, the word of the Lord to Australia, to Mount Barker, to the world today, just like the word of the Lord to Nineveh, starts with a word of judgment. We have sinned against God. We have rejected him. We are in deadly peril. And if we drop the judgment from our message, we actually rob God's word of its power. I mean, imagine you are sitting at the doctor's surgery and your doctor's telling you there's good news and you're all good when actually the doctor has in his hands or her hands the results of your latest test which show that you've actually got stage 4 cancer. 
That's not a very good or helpful doctor, is it? We would not dream, would we, of then going through the motions of, of this therapy if we didn't actually realise in what desperate, dire need we're in. I mean, who's going to sit through chemo and radiotherapy and dialysis unless they know the hard, bare facts about how dangerous cancer is? We need to know the judgement in order to realise we need to do something about it. See, the word of the Lord, the gospel message that we have, begins with a diagnosis of the seriousness of our condition. And it gives us a prognosis of where it will end if we leave it untreated. All people need to be told that we are under the sentence of death because of our rejection of God. All people need to be aware of the harsh and stark reality that God's judgment is coming. The word of the Lord came to Nineveh bringing judgment. But this judgment gave birth to repentance. Point two, the word of the Lord brings repentance. Have a look at verse five. Jonah's just preached, 40 more days, you'll be destroyed, verse 5. The Ninevites believed God. That's quite an incredible statement, isn't it? This strange guy, smelling like he was pulled out of the fish market bin on a 40-degree day, dragged through the desert, rocks into town. He doesn't look like he wants to be here. Actually, he's rude, he's grumpy. He doesn't seem to care at all. Starts saying, actually, 40 days, you guys are all going to get destroyed and good riddance. And they believed God. They recognised this wasn't just any ordinary man, but he was actually someone who'd been given a message from God and this was God speaking to them. Their consciences were, were sliced with a knife. They realised their guilt they believed that they were in deadly peril. And they respond with repentance. Now have a look at, at what they do. Some of these things might seem a bit weird to us today, uh, but the fasting, that's where they stop eating and drinking for a time, and, and the sackcloth, they put on kind of rough, like kind of think like potato sacks, if you can remember what they're like, put on these kind of rough rags, these things were expressions uh, that something really terrible, really distressing, really awful has happened. Something so terrible that actually to even think about self-care is something that kind of just seems wrong. We kind of get that natural reaction, don't we? When something really terrible happens, you know, we, we don't feel like eating. We don't care what our hair looks like, whether we've done our makeup or worn deodorant or even had a shower, when something really, really terrible happens, it's almost as if we, we think, actually, I don't even deserve those basics of self-care. I don't deserve to eat. I don't deserve to wear comfortable clothes. See, these things that they did show that their repentance was real. It wasn't just lip service or empty words. 
but genuine words with genuine actions. And quite astonishingly, we're told that it's not just one or two or a handful, but it's all of the city, this huge city, from the least to the greatest, even the mighty warrior king of Assyria. Have a look at how the king responded in verse 6. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. This wealthy, mighty, powerful, honoured, feared, respected, warmongering, pagan king becomes the model of perfect response to God's word. What does he do? He gets down from his throne. He takes off those things which say that he is a king. He covers himself with rags, symbol that he is no king but he is nothing. And he gets down in the dirt and calls out to God for mercy. Now, Leonard George Casley uh, was born in Kalgoorlie in WA in 1925. Uh, in 1970, he got into a dispute with the Western Australian government uh, regarding his wheat farm. And so he decided he was going to remove himself from the authority of the Australian government. So he established his own, what he called a micronation, uh, the Principality of Hutt River. I know some of you have heard. Uh, and he crowned himself. Does anyone know what he called himself? Prince Leonard, that's right, Prince Leonard. And, you know, he built himself a little throne and, you know, they came up with his own flag and all these kinds of things. And, uh, of course, the Australian government uh, never actually recognised his kingdom, funnily enough. Uh, and down the track, actually, uh, it turned out that uh, the government went after him for the $3 million of tax evasion, uh, that he thought he could get away with simply by declaring his own nation. Well, see, the word of the Lord actually establishes that every one of us in our hearts has tried to pull the Prince Leonard. Every one of us has tried to establish our own little micro-nation of one. We've tried to remove ourselves from God's sovereign authority as our king. And we've set ourselves up in our hearts and in our minds like, like little kings and little queens and princes and princesses on our little thrones with our little crowns and our little robes. We've done our own thing. We've ignored God. We've done what we want to do and not what God has told us to do. But the word of the Lord to us is that our true king is coming. And he doesn't recognise our micro-kingdoms. He doesn't recognise your sovereign state. Hear the king of Assyria. He examples, as my daughter would say, what every human needs to do to get off our little thrones in our lives, to take off our crowns, to stop pretending 
we are our own king and our own God and can rule our lives and can, can remove ourselves from his authority and to get down in the dust at the Lord's feet, acknowledging that he alone is king and we are absolute fools to have ever pretended otherwise. See, humbling ourselves and acknowledging God's sovereignty is that first step of repentance. And then the king gives an order for his whole kingdom to follow and it kind of fills in the rest for us of what repentance truly looks like. Verse 7, this is the proclamation that the king issued in Nineveh. Uh, Don't let anyone eat, not even animals, don't drink. Verse 8, let people and animals be covered in sackcloth. And here's here's the pinch. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we won't perish. See, the word of the Lord teaches us to call out to God for mercy. It teaches us while we're driving along in one direction, like Jonah, as far away from God as we think we can get, The word of the Lord calls us to pull on that handbrake, pull a hook turn and change the direction of our lives from living as our own kings and running from God to obeying him, honouring him as king, give up our evil ways, stop disobeying. So this is what true repentance looks like. And we see this in the whole city of Nineveh. I think most people, they think of Jonah and, uh, you know, you're to ask about Jonah and the miracle most people think of when it comes to Jonah is the guy that survived for three days in a fish, right? That's the miracle that comes to mind. But what about this miracle? An entire city, king and all, repent at that very short, very sharp message that word of the Lord. Well, 700 years later, Jesus actually pointed back to the people of Nineveh in Jonah's day. And he pointed to them as an example of true repentance. But not just an example, but also a warning. See, their testimony, their their story, what they did, actually stands as a word of judgment and warning to everyone who ever came after them. Because if they repented when that stinky, cranky prophet turned up and said God was going to destroy them, we have Jesus. We have the Son of the living God, the one who could walk on water, raise the dead, heal people, feed thousands, the one who died and conquered death, who everything he ever said came true. We have him and his word to us is a word of judgment with a call to repentance and grace. If the people of Nineveh could listen and believe and repent at Jonah, 
How does anyone have any excuse who doesn't listen, repent and believe with Jesus? People who reject Jesus have absolutely no excuse. Well, the word of the Lord is a word of judgment. It is a word that brings repentance, but it is also the word that brings mercy. Have a look at verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. I've got a question for you. Uh, here in chapter 3, who, who, who repented? It's not a silent question. Call it out. Who repented? Who? Huh? People of Nineveh. Anyone else? God repented. See, God was going to destroy them. And God pulled on the handbrake and did a hook turn. God actually changed the path that he was on. And he relented and chose not to destroy them. Their repentance actually brought God's repentance. Well, we'll find out next week, Jonah wasn't very happy about this. But here, even though the people of Nineveh deserved to be destroyed... God reserved his right to show mercy. In Jeremiah 18, the word of the Lord through the prophet Jeremiah, God said this, If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down and destroyed, and if that nation I warn repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I'd planned. And if at another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight, does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I'd intended to do for it. See, God repented when he saw the repentance of the Ninevites. He turned away his wrath. He turned away his anger. He chose to do good and not harm. And we see here that actually mercy is every bit as intrinsic to God's character as his justice. See, God will always be just. There must be punishment for sin. But God will always be merciful and delights to show mercy. Well, that might sound nice. Maybe you think, well, great, God should be merciful. He can forgive everyone, no problems. But maybe Jonah had, you know, some slight reason to feel a little bit ripped off. What about all the people who the Assyrians had pillaged and plundered and raped and slaughtered and displaced? Those they'd left pinned to the desert to be eaten by the birds alive. And what if you were someone whose family member you had you'd been dragged away from in chains left there to die. Would you think that that seems right or good, that God is merciful to the people of Nineveh? Well, it doesn't seem fair, and it actually wouldn't be fair, except that God provided a solution. He provided a way to make sure that justice was done. And he did it by providing his sacrifice. Provided Jesus, the eternal Son of God, 
who was destroyed in place of the Ninevites, destroyed in place of you and me and everyone who turned to him in repentance at his word. See, once for all, he paid the penalty and took the punishment so that we who deserve condemnation can receive mercy. See, it's only because of Jesus that our repentance can be matched with God's repentance. It's only because of Jesus that when we believe and cry out to God and ask for mercy, that God relents from pouring out his judgment on us and chooses instead to pour out his grace and mercy. And God has promised that for every single person. Our memory verse for this uh, this series, Acts 10.34, I hope you recognised it as we read it. I now realise how true it is that God does not show favouritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. See, the word of the Lord brings mercy. What a wonderful word. And that means, actually, if God's word is powerful enough to use this grumpy, hateful, stinky prophet like Jonah to save an entire city, well, then his word is powerful enough to use us. A gig on Friday night at our youth uh, group, uh, we asked the youth what they thought would happen if they marched into their schools and started telling everyone that God was going to destroy people for disobeying God. Uh, they all kind of said, well, actually, I don't think anything would happen. Really. They'd think I was a bit weird. They'd probably stop hanging out with me. But um, they'd probably just go on with life like nothing happened. And maybe that's true. I think actually most of us have this assumption that that's the case. I think most of us, when it comes to the word of the Lord, we feel a little bit like someone who's been sent into a gunfight with one of those little balloon swords. You know the ones that the clouds make, clowns make at, you know, at the fair? I feel like we're kind of in a room of gangsters with guns and we've got this balloon sword and we kind of just like want to hide it so that nobody notices and, you know? Yet the reality is, God's word is more like that atom bomb. Powerful to save. Powerful in its message of judgment to bring about grace and mercy through repentance. Now, a few weeks ago, uh, this is a fail story for you, uh, from me to show that actually I, I am just like any of us here in failing to recognise the power of God's word, in failing to trust how powerful it is. Uh, my grandma and grandpa were here a couple of weeks ago. Some of you guys would have met them at church. Uh, they're not believers. And they were here with us and it got to, you know, the, about the day, first or second day and I thought, oh, need to make some time, make some effort. And try and talk to them about Jesus. And a couple of opportunities came along and I piked. I thought, actually, it's, it's going to get awkward. It's going to get uncomfortable. Nothing's going to happen anyway. And so my grandparents spent a week with us and I acted like I was ashamed 
of the Word of God, like it was just a floppy little impotent balloon sword. And when they left, I realised just how foolish I'd been. Friends, we have the Word of the living God. It's like an atom bomb. We need to trust it. So today, our question for you is, how are you going to live this week? Don't even bother trying to think ahead, just this week. This week, are you going to live like God's word is a balloon sword or an atom bomb? Are you going to hide it behind your back? Are you going to trust that it's powerful to change, powerful to bring repentance as powerful to bring the great mercy and grace of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for Jonah. Uh, We thank you uh, for what we've read this morning. And we thank you, Lord, that we have seen the power of your word. We saw it back there uh, in Nineveh. We've seen it throughout history as you've built your church. We've seen it as you raised your son from the dead. And we've seen it as you've forgiven our sins. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to know that your word, the message of life in Jesus, is not impotent, it is not weak, it is not powerless, but it has incredible power to bring people to repentance. Lord, we pray that you would teach us to trust that word, trust its power, to not be ashamed of you and of your Son but to be those who proclaim your word boldly. You are a world that is facing destruction. Come to Jesus and be saved. Amen.